0: Thank you, Andrew. And uh, I have to say that Marion's absolutely fascinating paper about Diderot is going to be a very hard act to follow. So the, the title of my talk was actually composed by Andrew, I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was informed. I was informed that I was giving this talk, and it was called "Voltaire in St. Petersburg: The Voltaire Library and the Marginalia Project." Um, now, unlike Diderot, Voltaire never went to St. Petersburg. He had once planned to go, and he invited along his friend Henri Rieu, who lived, like him, in the French town of Ferney, just across the Swiss border. But the trip never transpired. The next best thing, of course, was for his library to go there in his stead. And so it did, and I was asked to tell the story today of how it got there, of what has happened to it in the 230 years or so that it has spent there, and of the 50-year ongoing project that will result in making accessible to scholars everywhere the ghost in the library, that is to say the spirit of Voltaire that remains embedded in the very pages of his books in the form of notes and other markings. I apologise to those of you whose story is already familiar and I also apologise that I've translated all the quotes from French not realising that everybody would be fluent um, And finally, I apologise for the lack of wide-ranging conclusions regarding the Russian Enlightenment uh, or the non-existence thereof, since I'm not a Russianist. Now, when Voltaire died, people developed a sudden interest in his library. The French state had, years before, mooted the idea of confiscating it, (laughs) as they wanted to seize any dangerous manuscripts that were to be found amongst the patriarch's papers to prevent them from being circulated. Marie Louise Denis, the great writer's niece and heir, claims to have refused offers from two German sovereigns wishing to buy the library. Her brother and nephew, Alexandre Jean Mignot and Alexandre Marie Francois de Paul de Dompierre d'Ornois, were adamant that the collection should remain within the family. When Catherine approached Madame Denis, however, via Friedrich Melchior Grimm, more on him later from Kelsey, Um, the French woman's response was favourable to the dismay of her relatives. Catherine had been in correspondence with Voltaire for 15 years and nearly 200 letters between them are known. They exchanged their views on many subjects, politics, toleration, legal reform, and Catherine always expressed the greatest respect and admiration for Voltaire and his writings. We have (coughs) the quote from uh, Marion earlier about uh, her never being anywhere without Voltaire um, by her side, (laughs) in some form or another. Mm -hmm. Um, Delicate negotiations about the library ensued, with Madame Denis playing coy and refusing to name a price, Mm -hmm. apparently hoping that silence on this point would result in a more generous payment from the Empress. She meanwhile was keen to learn more about the library that she was proposing to buy. She wrote to Madame Denis, asking whether it was true that the books contained many marginal notes. Madame Denis in turn passed the question on to Voltaire's secretary, who replied, It is indeed true that many volumes, in many volumes, there are notes in the margins and place markers in Mr Voltaire's hand, and in my own under his orders, by his dictation. And they are very interesting, but one needs to flick through the pages. <laughs> Talks between the Tsarina and the niece culminated in an agreement that the library, of about 4,000 titles in about 7,000 volumes, would pass to Catherine in exchange for an official letter of thanks, 30,000 rubles, a box with her portrait, furs, and diamonds. The German sovereigns were clearly out of their league. Why was Catherine so keen to acquire the library? In a letter to Grimm, she bemoans the fact that Voltaire's well, body was not sent to her, in light <laughs> in light of the difficulties uh, that his relatives had faced in wanting to bury him in, in consecrated ground, which the church had refused. "'He would have had the richest tomb,' she wrote to Grimm, "'but whether or not I have his body, he will still have a monument here. "'If it is possible, buy his library for me, "'and all that remains of his papers, including my letters.'" I would gladly pay a handsome price to his heirs, who I think do not know the value of all this. Mm -hmm. One suggestion by Ina Gorbatov has been that she wished to prevent the publication of her correspondence with Voltaire, either because she was embarrassed by her command of French, or because she feared that it would emerge that Voltaire's attitude towards her was in some way less flattering than his attitude towards other monarchs. This hypothesis, while it explains her wish to retrieve all her own correspondence, doesn't quite account for the desire to acquire the 7,000 volumes of the library. More plausibly, Sergei Karp has argued that the move was intended as a very public act to reinforce her image as enlightened ruler. The fact that she announced her intention to uh, to build a mausoleum to Voltaire's memory supports this view, and although the building of the monument was never presented by Catherine in her surviving letters as being in any way dependent on her success in acquiring the library, Madame Denis appears to have used Catherine's promise of the mausoleum as an argument in justifying to friends and family her willingness to sell to Catherine. In October 1779, at the Hermitage, two Frenchmen who spoke no Russian were busying themselves with twelve large crates. These were Jean-Louis Vagnier, Voltaire's secretary, and his fellow countrymen who had been Voltaire's coachman. The crates contained the 7,000 volumes of Voltaire's library, packed up and sealed in Ferne, and sent with Vannière and his companion first over land to Lubeck via Frankfurt, and then by boat to St. Petersburg, Catherine originally planned to build an exact replica of Voltaire's chateau, and blueprints, as well as samples of cloth from wall coverings and armchairs, were also sent over. This grandiose project never took shape, however, and Vanier left for France once he had set up the library. During her lifetime, Catherine used Voltaire's books at the Hermitage, a collection augmented later by Diderot's books, Nevertheless, she decided to build an imperial public library in St. Petersburg, and the library opened in 1795. The plan had been to assemble in one place all the imperial collection, including the Hermitage books, but for some reason, the Voltaire collection remained in the Winter Palace. During the five years of her son's reign, Paul, being hostile to anything to do with his mother and the Enlightenment, that's that word at last, Um, he neglected the Winter Palace and its contents while banning the importing of foreign books. Alexander I, while favouring Enlightenment ideals, largely ignored Voltaire's library, being somewhat preoccupied by events abroad, such as the Napoleonic Wars. It was under his successor, Nicholas I, that special permission was granted to Pushkin to work in Voltaire's library while he was preparing his history of Peter the Great and wished to consult materials sent to Voltaire for his Histoire de l'Empire de Russie sous Pierre Le Grand. There was some interest in the library during the 19th century when it was visited by a few French travellers, some of whom mentioned it in the memoirs of their journey. Um, I've listed some of them on the handout. On the whole, they were unimpressed, both with the material quality of the books and their bindings, but also with the contents of the marginalia, though some did express amazement that no one had yet thought to transcribe marginal annotations and publish them. There were a few isolated publications of the notes on particular works in French as well as in Russian, with the predictable emphasis on the marginalia on the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. In the late 1920s, Vladimir Lubinsky, the then head of the Voltaire Library collection in St. Petersburg, along with others, began to work on preparing a proper catalogue of the library. This work was ready for publication in 1947, but for mainly political reasons, resulting in Lubinsky being removed from his post, it was only published in 1961 and without Lubinsky's name on the title page. At the same time as work began on the catalogue, two pioneering visits were undertaken by American scholars George Havens and Norman Torrey, who published the results of their researches in the 30s, including the first ever systematic transcription of Voltaire's notes on Rousseau again. Between 1961 and 1969, a team of researchers, amongst whom Lebinsky and the next or the a future head of the Voltaire Collection, Larissa Albina, they began to compile the first entries of what was to become eventually the Corpus de Not Marginale, the collection, assembling, publishing Voltaire's marginalia. At first a thematic categorization was planned, but this was soon abandoned in favour of purely alphabetical order by name of author. The main criterion was completeness, meaning that not only textual notes were to be reproduced, but non-verbal traces as well, such as lines in the margin, bookmarks, turned down corners, bits of paper stuck to the page. Following on the conclusion that photographic reproductions would not adequately do justice to the subject, not least because marks left in pencil or score marks in the paper were not visible in the photographs taken, a quasi-facsimile method of reproduction was adopted. According to this method, the precise place of each mark or note would be made clear, either graphically or with a footnote, for example to specify whether a note is written in the top margin, in the bottom margin, or even on a bookmark inserted at the page. Each mark or note would be reproduced in relation to the printed text on the page, the text which had provoked it or to which it seems to relate, and all of this would be supplemented by an important critical apparatus of scholarly commentary, establishing links between the marginalia and Voltaire's published works and correspondence. In 1969, the team members of the project, thinking that they were perhaps three or four years away from completing it, Signed a contract with the East German publisher Akademie Verlag in Berlin. The contract stipulated that the complete typescript should have been submitted by the 31st of March 1971, two years afterwards. This typescript would not contain more than 1800 pages, which would be published in one or two volumes. Ten years later, <laughs> or in the, over the ten years that followed, this contract was to be much revised. The typescript covering the letters A and B alone came to over a 1,000 pages. The final typescript was eventually to reach over 10,000 and will total nine weighty volumes. Other changes along the way included the decision to uh, omit Voltaire's marks and marginalia in copies of his own works, since these were judged to be authorial revisions rather than the traces of his reading, conversely, it was decided to include marginalia made by people from Voltaire's entourage, such as his secretaries, his niece, and his long-time companion Emilie du Chatelet, presumably on the grounds that these marginalia might either have been produced following Voltaire's instructions or else might have influenced his own thought. Between 1979 and 1994, five volumes were published in East Berlin to the endless enthusiasm of Voltaire specialists to whom this treasure trove of material had been so long inaccessible. In 1993, however, the team lost Larissa Albina, whose very active work on the scholarly notes was greatly missed. At more or less the same time, geopolitical events overtook East Germany, including its publishing sector and it became impossible to find funding to support unprofitable ventures, no matter how scientifically important. It was only seven years later, however, that the typescript for volume six, sent to Académie Verlag in 1988, was finally returned to the team in St. Petersburg. And there it remained, until in 2002, a new contract, now under the direction of Natalia Il'agina, was signed with the Voltaire Foundation in Oxford, to publish the remaining volumes within the ongoing critical edition of the complete works of Voltaire. As Andrew has mentioned, the timing of today's conference happily coincides with the publication of Volume 8 of the Corpus des not literally sort of three days ago. Even more than previous volumes, Volume 8 was very much a collaborative effort In addition to the foundation laid by the Russian team, scholars from France, America and Oxford contributed to make this most recent volume a seamless combination of the original Russian scholarship and the latest research. We had reached the place in the typescript where the notes prepared under the direction of Larissa Albina were still rough and unfinished in places most noticeably in the notes commenting the marginalia left by Voltaire in the works of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Nathalie Ferrand from ITEM at the CNRS in Paris, Kelsey Rubin-Detlev, then at Columbia, now here, and Nicholas Cronk from the Voltaire Foundation, all rallied to ensure that the editorial notes commenting the marginalia on Rousseau were exhaustive and completely up-to-date, as befitting a publication appearing in 2012, the tricentenary of Uso's birth. Volume 9, containing the end of the alphabet, authors whose names begin with letters from S to Z, upon which work has already begun, is likely to be an even more collaborative work, since no notes exist at all in St. Petersburg. We plan to publish a tenth volume in the series. You say, what comes after Z? Um, <laughs> the exact scope and contents are still under discussion but it will at minimum contain all known Voltaire marginalia in books not kept in the library at the National Library of Russia as well as a study of the marginalia a sort of introduction after the fact because you can only write that once you know what's, what it's all about um, which, work on which is currently underway um, by me as it happens Voltaire is only one of many writers and non-writers who left marginalia as a sort of record of their reading. Interest in the field and in the history of reading is growing, as exemplified by the work of Heather Jackson in Toronto and others. We believe that Voltaire's marginalia have much to contribute to that discussion. I wanted to finish by showing you, but I'm not nearly finished, um, (laughs) by showing you some marginalia Mm -hmm. on Russian books. Unfortunately, I was at some pains to find any. Um, Catherine's 1767, Mm -hmm. Déclaration de la part de Sa Majesté l'Impératrice de toutes les Russies à Sa Majesté le Roi et à la République de Pologne, is in Voltaire's library, but contains only three tiny pencil marks in the text. Mm -hmm. Ivan Betzkoi's work, uh, Les plans et les statuts, des différents établissements ordonnés par sa Majesty Imperial Catherine II from 1775 seemed a good candidate, but it only has a label summarizing its title stuck to the spine. John Perry's État présent de la Grande Russie from 1717 was without a doubt an important source for Voltaire's own history on Peter <coughs> the Great, and it contains bookmarks that attest to his use of it, but other than that he limited himself to the correction of one date in the text. So, finally, I decided to present you with what the French call an inédit, that is to say, a bit of unpublished material, which will eventually appear in volume 9 of the corpus. And you'll find that on page 2 of the handout. Um, the Epitre Ninon is a work by Count Andrei Petrovich Shuvalov, Russian man of letters and chamberlain under Catherine II. He was a correspondent of Voltaire's, and in his youth he spent time in Paris where he frequented Madame du salon and met a number of philosophes, even visiting Voltaire in Ferney. When Voltaire died in 1778, Chouvalov wrote an Épitre à Voltaire. His talent for French verse astonished all who read his work, to the extent that many who read his Épitre à Ninon believed it to be by Voltaire. For example, in the Correspondence littéraire, a sort of manuscript periodical masterminded by our friend Grimm, one can read. In spite of the way in which this charming epistle makes free with Voltaire's name, all of Paris is convinced that he is its author. One cannot conceive of anyone other than Ninon's heir, which is to say Voltaire, who could sing in such delightful tones. This little book, then, contains a poem written by a young Russian, almost certainly inspired by Voltaire, who had met, when he was a boy, Ninon Lancro before her death in 1705. The poet appears to have sent the manuscript to Voltaire in Ferney in October 1773, since on the 15th of that month Voltaire sent back a glowing appreciation in verse. He is also reported to have sent a long letter about the book in April or May of the next year, but the text of this letter has not come down to us. It must have been full of praise, however, since we have Chavalov's reply of the 26th of June. All the wonderful things that you have had the kindness to write to me in a letter of four pages of your own hand, are too flattering for me to take them as anything but a compliment that the greatest man of Europe could deign to pay to one of his most sincere admirers. Is it possible to read your works and not adopt your manner of thinking? Could one refuse the philosophy that you inculcate in your readers with such beautiful lines? That is my situation. My Epitraninon is a summary of the many important things that you have taught to mankind. You see, therefore, that my own contribution has only been to apply the mechanics of a few verses. So far so good. <coughs> when preparing this talk, I reorganised at least three times how I would tell this story, since the more I investigated the background of this marginal marginal note, the deeper I was drawn into a bewildering labyrinth of bibliographical disparities. And the more I unraveled these confusions, the less of a story I was left with. (laughs) When I first came to examine this marginalia on Shuvalov, the first thing that struck me was the indication in the preliminary transcription that the edition is believed to have been um, made by Voltaire. Um, It says, uh, in in the heading, it says Publié par Voltaire in square brackets when at first glance his handwritten intervention in the margin seems to be at odds with this hypothesis, since he seems to have extra knowledge uh, of the poem compared to um, the printed edition. So uh, the the verse that uh, is in question. Ninon, reçois l'encens que je t'offre en mes vers. Ton nom vainqueur des temps passera d'âge en âge. Détesté du bigot et révéré du sage. Il toujours ton esprit et ton cœur. And as a footnote, nous <coughs> laissons ce vers tel qu'on a eu la bêtise de l'imprimer. Nous ne savons pas qui il était dans l'original. I translated that below. I haven't quite got it into rhyming uh, iambic pentameter, but. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the column on the right, in bold typeface, we have Voltaire's correction, where he corrects déchira, mm-hmm. torn, to déchirera will treasure, which makes a great deal more sense in the context of the verse. Uh, And at the same time, he crosses out the note at the bottom of the page, which indicates that the publisher was aware that there was a problem with the verse. It seemed unlikely that if Voltaire had supervised the printing, this error would have been left, especially since someone at some stage had clearly been aware of it, to the extent of having had a note printed, drawing attention to the mistake. Two separate letters by Voltaire, addressed to different people, say explicitly that the poem was printed by Chouvalov's so-called uncle, Ivan Ivanovich. This appeared to provide evidence that Voltaire was not responsible for the edition. Then, Search for the Work, in a Swiss online catalogue, turned up an article that uh, uh, Anne-Sophie barovic has written about Voltaire's role in editing the poem which revealed the existence of at least four editions of the text, as well as a letter by Voltaire stating that he had, in fact, had the poem printed. Hmm. So, if Shcherbalov's uncle had published it once, perhaps Voltaire was behind subsequent editions. Contradictions between articles and library catalogues then began to show up. One said that two specific copies were identical apart from a few typographical details on the title page, but the catalog of the library in which the copies are held, mentions extra verses added to the poem in one of the copies. Further, it identifies one as a Parisian production, which, if true, would be a strong argument against Voltaire's involvement, since most things that he had printed at the time would have gone through his usual Genevan printer, Gabriel Kramer. The Plot Thickened, a very rare four-page edition, the one in Voltaire's library has seven pages, And the other two later ones, which may or may not be very similar, both have 24. So the four page edition is said in one place to be Parisian, but elsewhere to be a Moscow production. One very confusing note somewhere refers to the Paris edition printed in Geneva. (laughs) (laughs) The matter is further complicated. By extra texts that follow on from the poem of the 24-page editions, thus explaining why they're longer. Uh, One being an anonymous reply, the réponse à Monsieur de V, so addressing Voltaire as if he were its author, to which is appended with a very strangely placed note call, a billet de Monsieur de Voltaire, in which he proclaims his admiration for the poem and for Russian writings in French, denies being the author of the Épitre, and compares it favourably to the frivolity which, in our country, has been followed so closely on the heels of barbarity. Was the edition by Voltaire after all? But then I found a claim that Voltaire's edition also contains this billet, a point that I have not yet been able to verify with colleagues in St. Petersburg. During none of this, now, did I forget the central puzzle of the correction in Voltaire's copy. Chauvalov had, let's not forget, sent him the manuscript in October 1773, If he had had it printed, why not have checked the faulty verse against the manuscript, which he had in November offered to have copied for an unknown correspondent? A letter he wrote to Constant de Rebec, a local man also living near Geneva, mentions the error. Voltaire writes, There is a line that I do not understand, which is probably a misprint. The rest seem to me elegant, correct, and boldly executed, such as is rarely found amongst our rhymesters of little gallant verses. So was the manuscript lost, forgotten? Then we return to a letter in which Voltaire mentions the printing by Ivan Ivanovich. I had just received the epistle when the other Count Chouvalov, his uncle, came to see me about a month ago. He immediately had it printed in Geneva, with a print run of forty-odd copies. He kept the original. You can check these facts with him when you see him at Madame Dufon's Dufon's house, where he goes sometimes. At first, the sentence, he kept the original, seemed unclear to me. Was this an earlier printing still? But then I wondered whether perhaps Voltaire's manuscript copy had disappeared along with his house guest. Here, then, is my proposed scenario, all subject to confirmation when I can actually see these editions for myself. The manuscript gets sent to Voltaire in October. He sings its praises. Copies circulate in manuscript. In February, the Correspondence Littéraire circulated it. Rumours fly that it is in fact by Voltaire. Ivan Ivanovitch visits Voltaire in Ferney, and while there, he uses Voltaire's manuscript copy to have 30 or 40 copies printed in Geneva. These have four pages. The printer introduces an error, unfortunately, at line 7, printing déchirard instead of chérirard. Ivan Ivanovitch goes back to Paris, taking Voltaire's manuscript with him. Voltaire decides to print a new edition, but all he has to go on now is the first defective edition. He prints it with the note pointing out the error. He also adds the billet, the disclaimer of authorship. This edition has seven pages, and it is the one that he owns in his library. Then editions three and four appear, both having 24 pages, someone adding the anonymous réponse and reproducing Voltaire's note and disclaimer. I hesitate to say, because I haven't actually been able to see any of these editions yet, most of them being in Paris um, and St. Petersburg, but I suspect strongly that Voltaire was not in fact involved in the two later 24-page printings. Then, at a later date, Voltaire discovers what was originally the true text of line 7 and takes the trouble to correct his copy by hand. It's possible that a correct copy was in fact circulating in some form or another because it's interesting to note that the Institut et Musée Voltaire in Geneva holds a copy containing the same hand correction at the same verse but I haven't been able to see this to examine the handwriting. It could possibly have belonged to a member of Voltaire's circle near Geneva, to whom he communicated his satisfaction on having found out the correct verse. I realise that a convoluted meander through arcane bibliographical details may not quite be what any of you thought you'd signed up to when choosing to attend an event on the Russian Enlightenment. But I felt that telling the story of my struggle to explain this apparently simple correction in Voltaire's copy of the Épitre à Ninon would afford you a glance of what it can sometimes mean to work on the critical commentary to a corpus of material as complex and as diverse as an author's marginalia. For the question under discussion today also, it is worth pointing out that Voltaire's letters about the Épitre, not only to Shuvalov, but also to French contemporaries, suggest that he seemed very much to believe in the reality of the Russian Enlightenment, in his favourable comparisons between Russia and France. Although his view was informed through contact with only the very upper echelons of the Russian elite, surely his experience must not count for nothing. Or, on the other hand, it was very convenient for Voltaire to have a talented young Russian to hand, for he often took a perverse pleasure in snubbing contemporary French culture and showing up its defects by comparing it with the strengths of an exotic foreign culture. As usual, Voltaire makes for a slippery witness. Perhaps the question is still open to debate after all. Thank you.